simply flip a coin. And what that is, it's a, it's a form of metacognition is what psychologists call it. And it short circuits your doubt. And because doubt, the longer you leave it to make a decision, the less likely you are to make a decision. So making it quickly, so reaching that point of where, okay, I can't split between these two, flip a coin, heads or tails, that short circuits that in your brain and stops that, that vicious cycle that reduces your chance of making a decision the longer you leave it. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is the former CEO of Best Western Hotels in Great Britain, founder of Grind Academy, a leadership evangelist, and is the best-selling author of the book Flip and Decide. Our guest has honed his craft over a remarkable 25-year career in the hotel industry, working with global brands such as Intercontinental Hotels, Accor Hotels, Devere Group, Malmaison and Hotel Duvin, Village Hotels, and as we mentioned earlier, the Best Western Hotels Group. He has launched multiple technology platforms and possesses a wealth of entertaining storytelling and practical business advice. I'm honored to introduce a remote farm kid turned passionate leadership expert, 2020 industry titan by Boutique Hotelier Magazine, founder of headwear brand Cody Spice, and featured on the renowned UK's Channel 4 docuseries Inside Best Western, Rob Patterson. Rob, welcome to the show. Hello. What an introduction. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Craig. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, you grew up on a very remote farm in Australia. Um, whereabouts was it? And what was the big dream from a kid who was out there on a big farm? Oh man, the town's called Peak Hill, and if you can find that on a map, well done. You're doing very well. It's kind of nestled in between, about halfway between Dubbo and Parks. Most people know the Dubbo Zoo. Uh, so yeah, about uh, about halfway uh, between Dubbo and Parks, and it's a tiny little town. You know, my school, uh, my final year, there was uh, there was seven of us in the class, two two girls and five boys, so that made high competition. Uh, so maybe that's where the competitive streak came from. But for me, man, when I was at school, it was all about sport. I just wanted to play Australian football, and uh, I put all my time and effort and into into that, and very little into study. Uh, and yeah, that was that was my passion. That's what I wanted to do. I really didn't think about a career in hotels at that time, for sure. Yeah, wow, quite fascinating. I had the same sort of upbringing in a way. I grew up on a farm. The nearest neighbour was a mile away. Probably for you, it was probably a little bit more than a mile. Um, but, uh, and, and I went to a school as well where we started with 26 kids primary school and ended up with seven in my last year. Um, so maybe let's touch on that because I think it's quite interesting when you, when you grow up in a school environment like that, you are constant because the teacher, I mean, I, I take my hat off to those teachers cause you've got to cover such a yeah. range of maturity levels, a, a range of, you know, I suppose, uh, development you know developmental um growth in kids but what i loved about that is you were always you know the, the students were also helping to teach and mentor and coach each other both up and down and sideways uh, did you find that as well like in your schooling years yeah you get away with less because and you'll know what i'm talking about here i mean 
my math teacher was um, my best mate's mom. <laughs> you know, like you, you can't really mess up and get away with things. So that kind of almost um, instills a level of maturity that you're you're almost bound to. And you're right, you do end up, um, especially when there's only seven people in your class, you do end up interacting a lot more with the students above you, two, three years above you even, and two or three years below you. So it does almost take on a natural evolution of uh, of being mentored and guided by the, the years above you and, and then in turn paying that back, you know, and, and supporting the... The, the years below you. So I, inadvertently, and I've never thought about that before, by the way, that's a really good point that you raised. But yeah, I guess that is the the reality of a small school like that. Probably save your parents having to have a conversation about the birds and the bees because it, it probably happened in the schoolyard because you're hanging out with people a lot older than you. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could say you develop a bit quicker in that sense. But yeah, when there's only two girls in your class, there's not much to, um, no practice time. Ah. <laughs> uh, and, and so you wanted to be a, you know, professional, professional athlete. You loved AFL, you're into sports. Um, how did, you know, obviously living up in a, sorry, growing up in a very small remote town, you know, did you, how far did you have to drive to be able to get enough people together to actually join an AFL team? Yeah, so I, I played in a, a team in Parks, and I, I grew up actually in Ballarat in Victoria. I spent about the first, I think, 12 years of my life I was in Ballarat before I moved to Peak Hill, so, and also on a farm. So, um, so that's where the AFL came from, but when I got to Peak Hill, I was sort of just hitting my adolescent years, and it's pretty important from a sports development perspective. Those ages are pretty critical. The, the competition level went down, but... As you say, you kind of just become a little bit resourceful in a country town and you end up having to, you know, we would drive on a Saturday. It wouldn't be unheard of to drive six hours to our to a game and then six hours back after the game. But that's what you did. Like uh, one of the towns that we played against was Lake Jellico, which is where um, a famous set of brothers, the Danaher brothers, were from. So despite it being very remote, there was still very competitive um teams although the standard as a general statement was a little bit lower it was still very physical and very competitive mm. and so were you a, a natural leader or follower when you were in your kind of high school years i think when i hit the high school years and i'd kind of gotten out of glasses and and uh those sort of things i took on a natural leadership uh, uh style of play and style of, of camaraderie in the team so it, it, I was liking my whole life to my uncle and he was a very good sports person. And, and from the earliest age I can think of, I was told that I look like him and I sound like him and, and my mannerisms are the same as him. And inadvertently, he became, you know, I became him effectively, probably the other way around, because I watched what he did and I listened to what he did and I saw what he did. And because I was told I was like him, I ended up mimicking him. So I think that's probably where it started and, uh, and, and it developed throughout, uh, through, right throughout my career, right to the CEO of, uh, of a large organization. He was also a CEO of a large organization. So I guess I mimicked and followed his leadership. Mm. And you talk about, before we came on, about being kind of an accidental hotelier in a way. So when was your first introduction into the world of hospitality and, and hotels and, and what was your first role? Yeah, so I went to Sydney from, uh, from Peak Hill in central New South Wales uh, for Aussie Rules. And it was when they first introduced the, the rule that you, you had to have a vocation outside of sport. You couldn't just mm. go and play sport and pursue it because when it come to an end, what were you going to do? Or if it came to an end, which it did for me, so fortunately, I went through this list and I was like, well, hospitality looks the easiest. I'll go with that. So that was the only reason I went with hospitality. And then my, I turned up and we had to do on the job, quite a lot of on the job work experience. And my first job was at the, uh, um, in the America's Cup bar in the Hilton in Sydney. Yeah. And I would go in in the morning and clean the bar. That was my job. I had to clean the bathrooms and clean the floor. And, and I spent a year there moving through various departments in the housekeeping uh, uh, space. So I started right at the uh, ground level and, and, um, and worked my way up. And, and that helped, I think that held me in good stead throughout my career because there was 
there was probably never anything I asked anyone to do that I hadn't done myself, mm. uh, which I would, which I thought was important. And very humbling as well, you know, someone that has obviously come through to Sydney to play AFL, so you're obviously professional sports and here you are, you're at the bottom of the chain, so to speak, cleaning toilets in a in a bar at a hotel. And so I think that's that's good because sometimes we see a lot of professional athletes, they get put on a pedestal, they get given everything. Uh, life is kind of easy in a way, people look after them all the time. So I think whoever made that decision at that point was yeah. giving you a really good grounding to not only being a great athlete, but also having, you know, to, to being a great leader in a career as well. Yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I'm, I'm grateful for it retrospectively. You know, I used to start at 5 a.m. So for an 18-year-old kid who's first out of home and getting on a bus and going from Coogee into the city and, you know, at 4.30 in the morning, I'd be getting on the bus at 9 o'clock when I finished cleaning everything. The bar usually finished in three hours. I'd get on the bus and fall asleep. I'd be just so tired, but it was definitely good grounding. It was humbling. And how for you, you know, like you, you go from a small town country kid where everyone knows who you are to then move to a big city where no one knows who you are um, but you're you know you've got this great opportunity uh, you've got the bright lights of the big city you're in Coogee which is a, a famous kind of uh, beach uh, location as well in Sydney how did you find that mentally being able to make that shift uh, did it ever go to your head or or did you ever feel really lost? You know, what kind of emotions were you going through or, or how did you find that experience? I imagine you'll know this well. I mean, the first six months for me was a huge adjustment coming out of a town where you're very comfortable in that environment because you know everyone. You're very comfortable driving around because the roads are pretty quiet. You, you fall into like a comfort zone and I that really throws you from going from a really remote town to Sydney bustling, crazy, busy. It really puts you outside of that comfort zone. So I struggled, I would say, for six months. I had good support around me and my family was very much um, pushing me to keep keep at it. Uh, if it wasn't for them, I probably would have turned around and gone back. I had this mm. cool job as a bread delivery guy in Peak Hill and I was like, I'll go back and do that for the rest of my life. <laughs> so <laughs> glad that didn't happen. Yeah, for to give people perspective around the world, um, you go from meeting eight people a day, the seven, you know, seven in your class plus the teacher, uh, to eight million people in Sydney. So it's a, it's a bit of a difference. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, being in hotels, you've got um, I, I love the hotel industry, a hospitality. It teaches you stuff really fast. You've got to be able to connect with human beings. Um, if you don't, uh, you, you'll be sitting there cleaning the toilets the rest of your life in hotels. So your ability to communicate with people, connect with people, host people. Uh, how, how did you find that journey from, you know, scrubbing the toilets to then moving up through, where did you kind of realize, hey, you know what, this is really cool. I actually want to do this as a career. Well, it was when, when the football didn't work out, it was like, what am I going to do now? So that was kind of the, the first step. But I had a boss and, you know, you know you, you, you've talked about mentors a couple of times. I had a, a boss at the Wentworth in Sydney, which is um, like a big five-star hotel at the time, uh, had all the politicians and the big farming um, uh, representatives and things like that. So it was quite a, a lot of famous people. And I was way out of my comfort zone there, but I worked on front desk. And I had a mentor, a boss there, and she, Martine, I remember her so clearly. And she said, right, you're kind of shy. So what we're going to do is you're going to just, the whole shift, you're just going to get in the lift and talk to people. So I literally sat in a lift for probably a week. She made me do this, going up and down, just talking to complete strangers. And, you know, <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. But I guess that was her method was to really throw you in the deep end and, and, push your way out of your comfort zone. And then when you go back and stand behind the reception desk and feel a little bit safer because you've got a barrier between them and you and it's a normal process, you know, it's not an uncomfortable situation that you're trying to force. It's a, a transaction, you know, they're coming to check out. It's a whole lot simpler. So I would say that was sort of the, the turning point of being able to interact and learning about different people because at 5 a.m. when you're cleaning the toilets, you don't find that. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I mean, mentors in life, 
and in your roles and they kind of come from they don't have to be formal they come from the most unexpected places just set you up for the future and that she certainly uh, set me up for the future on people's skills yeah and you bring up a, a really good point that i'd like to dive into you know mentors you know mentors are not just ones who who give you lots of gratitude, say you're awesome, you're doing really well and cheerleading, you know, they're the, quite often the mentors we remember are those that gave us that nudge or, or gave us the good kick up the butt to go out of our comfort zone because we don't, you know, there's no growth in comfort. So, you know, that situation where you're inside a lift and uh, you've probably never been in a lift before <laughs> until you moved to Sydney. <laughs> uh, so, you know, you're in that in that confined space where you're talking to people from all around the world, oh, what a defining moment. What a great mentor to, to push you out of your comfort zone at that point. Yeah, I think that was her little trick because I noticed other people who came in after me, so they got the same treatment. So I'm sure there's somebody else sitting telling this story going, oh, man, this, this crazy lady. But I'm still friends with her to this day, by the way. I'm, I'm saying crazy lady out of uh, – it's a um, term of endearment. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and so – you just didn't stay in in Sydney. You you had the chance to you know go around the world. Uh, for you, um, obviously working at hotels and you're talking about five star hotels. You get to meet different people around the world. Uh, what was the I suppose encouragement or excitement to go and explore outside of Australia? I think the courage that I drew from moving out of the country and to the city, and there was like this sort of light bulb switch moment that I realized, hey, I like this. This is comfortable. I'm comfortable now and I've been able to adjust to this and I did it. So it was like, I want more of that now. So it was uh, it was probably the the realization that, hey, I can do this, the belief that grew and then the excitement that was like, well, this is Sydney. What else is there? This is pretty cool. So that, that, that really instilled a, a sense of adventure, I would say, uh, mm -hmm. into my life. Right. Now, if we go, if we go back to your 40 days, uh, what did you learn? And, uh, and so for those out there who don't know what AFL is, it is Australian Football League or AFL or, or Aussie Rules, or, uh, or they quite commonly call it footy, which I know some of the soccer fans out there and the rugby fans be like, hey, no, no, we call our sport footy. But um, what, what did AFL teach you that you've found was invaluable in regards to working in hotels and, and even being a leader? It probably comes back to a project that I worked on recently and it was, it's decision making. You know, what I loved about the sporting field was that we were very trained on decision makings and they happened in a split second. You didn't have time to think and actually if you stopped, especially at the speed, once you get up into the higher leagues, the speed at which you're playing, if you stop for a second, hesitate for a second, you either destroy the play up the field or you get destroyed, yeah. which happened plenty of times to me. But I, I like that. I drew a lot of confidence from being able to make those really quick decisions, snap decisions and, and feel confident about it and go with it and brought that into my life inadvertently really because I couldn't really, I didn't have that same process, that same uh, you know, confidence to go with your instinct in life. And it wasn't until I sort of figured out this uh, crazy little thing when I, you know, when you're in your high school years, you get to choose your electives, you get to choose the classes you would go to. I remember sitting there and thinking, oh man, I can't really decide what I want to do. I'm, I'm, I know I'm 15 years old. I don't know what I want to do. And I took a coin and I was like, I'm just going to make a decision and go with it. And I flipped the coin and I chose my classes, which happened to be the one I chose on that one happened to be home economics, which kind of worked out from a hospitality point of view. But I made that decision and I never looked back and I moved forward with it. And that decision making on the football field transpired into my life through flipping coins. And I've carried that right through my life. You know, I've carried that into my uh, days as a CEO of, of a large organization in, in the UK. I, I flipped coins for decisions. I'd never told the board at the time, but I did. It was uh, It was a really easy way for me to be right, I'm going to be decisive and go for it. And that's what I learned on the football field was to make a decision and go for it. I carried that into my business life. Because mm. the true characteristics of leaders come out not, not when things are smooth sailing. It comes out when there is challenges and when there's great success. 
and you know leaders that are able to be decisive and make a decision and and have real clarity around what that are are the ones that are generally very successful because people uh, are attracted to people that are able to make a decision and decide uh, we all know that hesitate you lose and, and obviously you know that very well in AFL if you hesitate with a ball you get cleaned up um, or as you said it affects the play up there uh, but it's you know that decisiveness we saw a lot of companies when COVID hit the ones who hesitated were the ones that really really struggled and, and lost the connection with their people whereas those who made decisions whether it was rightly or wrongly we're attracted yeah. to that, followed that, puts belief in it, and we're actually, in most cases, really, really successful. Yeah, and, and I think the best example of that is politics. And I don't want to go too far into politics, but a lot of politicians got found out through COVID because they're just not natural leaders. You know, they're, they're book smart people, academic people who've really never faced the real world and had to make quick decisions. You know, the decision-making process in politics is ridiculous. and they really got found out, I think, right across the world. There was a handful who were decisive. You know, I think Jacinda Ardern probably comes to mind as one who really handled it well and painted herself in glory. And she was decisive and quick to make decisions and firm. And then you had others that weren't so... Uh, I was in the UK. I'm not going to go into names, but it wasn't the best. <laughs> um, yeah, they're great examples. It does, like I think the last couple of years was the greatest experiment of human behaviour and definitely in our lives, I mean, I'm sure there's been other moments previous to that, but in our lives, it, has, it was a monumental moment where, as you say, leadership uh, and then the characteristics of people really shone through. You, you had nowhere to hide, you were exposed, and you had to think quickly. And I think this it's a good lesson, I, I think, for politics in a way, is to how can we maybe shape politics for the future where we're not waiting decades for decisions to be made. And in some cases, it takes that long to make a decision. We look at reconciliation right now and the referendum, it's like, whoa, you know, this is taking way too long uh, for something really that is quite simple to solve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And infrastructure deals, all sorts of things. Yeah, they're just not equipped as leaders, I think was the the overarching factor for me and what I saw in the US and the UK was a mess. Yeah. And look, we're going to flip and decide a little bit shortly. Uh, but I, you know, for you, what did being a hotelier teach you as a human being? I, you know, hospitality at its heart is about people and life is about people. So I would say, you know, that, that aspect, that'll never go away about hospitality. There's a lot of talk right now about what technology is going to do, what generative AI is going to do, AI is going to do. And at the heart of everything for hotels is, is, is experiences and people. And that will never go away whilst many tasks are going to be automated in the hospitality industry. And there's no doubt, you know, AI is coming along. People still yearn for human connection. And that's what hospitality, that's what the industry teaches and that's what the industry is, you know, should be known for and should be famous for. I hate the idea of a staffless hotel. <laughs> so, and you know, that that's what, you know, you can carry that, carry that through to absolutely any part of your life. Mm. Uh, so the human connection side is the definitely the key that stands out. Yeah, human intelligence needs to be always a step ahead of artificial intelligence. And I'm just hoping some of these companies out there that, are trying to replace customer service and human interaction roles with technology. I hope they they flip that around because they're the roles where you need the humans and let's invest in those spaces because we want an experience. And I, and I'm you know I see this a little bit in hospitality in certain areas. So I'll, I'll look at restaurants for instance. Restaurants now they ask you I, I want you to click on the barcode, order here, and then we'll come. Well. Yes, that might be easier, more efficient for the restaurant, but for the the customer who's coming in to sit down, you're you're making the time longer and more stressful, especially if there's a group of yeah. people. It's like you have to look at both sides of it, as you, both sides of the coin, so to speak, um, because yeah. 
it can't just be great for business. You have to have a client centricity mode in there as well. And I think that that balance of the business centricity, client centricity, and the employee centricity is starting to right itself a little bit at the moment, but it's going to be crucial going forward. And we're going to have to be, uh, we're going to have to be very clever about the way we make decisions. It needs to be a lot more holistic than just what's best for business or what's just best for employees or what's just best yeah. for clients. We need to take those three components in, um, into our decision making in a, in any organization. Yeah, yeah, and I think I'm also I'm very grateful for the review sites because that what that what you see there is that the ones who really do invest in leadership and and invest in great customer service usually rise to the top. So if you go to TripAdvisor, you'll typically find it's the people that are driving the best remarks. People are willing to go online and write a review when they've had great service. It's you know good food's important, absolutely no doubt about it. But it's uh, it's the human side that really drives that um, uh, real success on the review site. So I think they're doing a good job at keeping people honest. Mm. You touched on a word there, experience, and I think people are looking for experiences, and it goes beyond just the the great customer service in a hotel. How important was for you to create experiences that they may not achieve anywhere else when it um, when it came to the different hotels that you're working in? Yeah, it's, a, it's very different depending on the type of customer you're going for. So the best example I could give is an airport hotel. People aren't looking for an experience at an airport hotel. They're just looking for a convenient bed and mm. a good shower and decent Wi-Fi. So you really got to look at the product and what who you're trying to appeal to. But, you know, working for Mel Mason, you mentioned Mel Mason and Hotel Devan there. You know, Hotel Devan is all about uh, shabby, chic French wine and uh, French food and it is all about the experience. Mel Maison's a, another boutique brand, which is people go there to have an experience that, you know, a romantic experience or a, a, a special night away, a birthday or, a, or a, an anniversary or something like that. It's an occasion. So you really got to work hard on creating an experience that they can't otherwise create at home. So whether that's the decor, the service, the, the food that you're delivering, it can't just be a you know, pie and mash, it's got, to, it's got to be something that they couldn't create at home or wouldn't be easy for them to create at home. And I think this is important too for um, leaders and their employees, you know, what experience are you creating for people so they can enjoy their, their time at work and, and be inspired to, to create great human interactions with their clients and customers along the way? Um, yeah, I, even an airport hotel, you know, I mean, I've been to a lot of airport hotels where the shower pressure is not great and the internet's not good. And you're thinking, really, what do I want out of an airport hotel? I really want a good shower because if you've come off a long flight, especially, yep. I really want a soft bed that's and a room that's quiet. So even in a hotel where you're kind of not creating an incredible experience, you, there's still that you've got to still understand who your customer is and what you're trying to achieve with that product. Otherwise, you're going to sit at the bottom of the review sites and and not have a great business. And so, you know, a long career in hoteling and then you, you've over the last couple of years started to move and transition out of the hotel industry. What, what led you to making that shift? Yeah, I, you know, I, I was telling you before about my uncle and, and I had looked up to him and been told I was like him for my whole life. And it was probably a realization through COVID that, hey, I reached the top. And every time I went up in a role, I was like, oh, next role, then I'll be happy. Next role, then I'll be happy. And I kind of reached the top and I went, well, still haven't found this thing that I'm looking for and I'm not satisfied and not fulfilled. So it was a time, I guess, for everyone to reflect. Uh, you know, it was no different from for me. It was busy because the hotel industry was hit pretty hard. But uh, but it was a time to reflect and say, really, what what's important? What do I value? And reassess you know, what are the real core values of my life and what am, how do my actions align to that? And, and staying as a CEO in hospitality, I was getting frustrated at simple things that I shouldn't be getting frustrated at. You know, there was clear signs and that's what really caused the inflection. Mm. And uh, and then, yeah, that was, you know, the step away. I kind of looked up, at the, got to the top of the mountain and someone said to me the other day, I looked back and realized I'm at the wrong mountain. 
So that was pretty humbling. And, uh, you know, to switch as well is a huge humbling experience because you've got to really, uh, you've built a lifestyle and I call it stuck in the middle. You know, you've got all these um, subscriptions, you've got your gym membership, you've got your car payment, you've got your house payment. And it's not easy just to go, okay, I'm going to switch and change out and do something different. So um, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and, and a lot of sacrifice to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm at the bottom right now trying to build back up. So I'm at the lowest humbling point there. <laughs> yeah, definitely humbling. And so, so in that space, you're like, okay, I reflected back on, it's not fulfilling. What kind of sparked your passion to, or what was the first kind of the spark um, that, that brought your passion back and what did you do first? It was really deciding what's valuable to me and what, what what I valued most in life. So sitting down and going through an exercise of of saying, what's important? What do I, you know, what really makes up the, the what's the ingredients that makes me really happy in life? So it was reevaluating that. And then once I had that, it was deciding what fits, what aligns with that. And I realized that throughout my career, the bits that really gave me the most uh, satisfaction and the most joy was when you know, when you, you help someone along the way, especially in some of the roles where I would be able to recruit from schools, universities and students who were first job into the um, into the hospitality industry. I love giving, you know, young people a chance and a shot and then seeing them grow into really, you know, really solid uh, uh, careers of their own. That was probably the highlight for me. And that's what sort of led me down the path towards uh, to start establishing a leadership academy. And as much as I say I've switched out of the industry, it's my focus now is the hospitality industry because that's, you know, I, although I, was, I feel like I went up the wrong the wrong mountain, it, it was it's still my people, right? I know them really well. I understand them. I understand their challenges. And so I'm just now focusing on the hospitality industry, but really in leadership. Hmm. And so it's called the Grind Academy, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, did that come from grinding pepper or grinding coffee, or is it more of a play on you know the the grind that we go through and we have to kind of adapt and inspire ourselves along the way in the in the grind, I suppose, over a career. Yeah, a lot of people ask me, "Is that a coffee company?" <laughs> and it's not a coffee company. Um, no, it comes from, I think there's a bit of a negative perception around hustle and grind culture. And I'm not promoting hustle and grind culture at all. It's uh, the reason I did it is because I had to grind to, to get to the top. I always was happy to take, you know, I was happy to take promotions on less pay and I had to graft to get to the, get, get it, get to the next step of uh, each next step in my career. So I'm, and I'm proud of that. You know, I, I, there's times in life when, you know, you do go through the grind and then there's other times when you're like, you know what, I'm going to take a, a step back. And for me, I you know, I wrote a book in the last 18 months and, and reflect and inflect and, and uh, decide what you want to do. But I think there's seasons in life. And my issue with then the people who are really negative towards the hustle and grind culture is that they're kind of enforcing their culture on other people as well. And I, I think the best thing is that if someone wants to hustle and grind, let them hustle and grind. If someone wants to chill out and be on holiday, let them chill out and be on holiday. The issue comes when we start enforcing our own uh, our own ideals on somebody else. And, and I think that's the negative connotation that's come around. So for me, it was like, you know what, I'm just going to go with it because I'm proud of that. And I'm not going to hide behind. Some people might not like it, but I'm going to call it Grind Academy because I had to grind to get to the top. And I'm proud of that. Very good. Owning it, uh, which I love. Now, when we talk about decisions, what is going on inside people's brains that lead them to hesitation, lead them to doubt, um, you know, in, in those moments where they're needed to step up? Yeah, well, I, this was something that I, in the time that I had off, it was it was a bucket list item to write a book and, and I wanted to write it on, on decision making. So I spent a lot of time researching with... Um, Neuroscientists. I interviewed three different neuroscientists, and I and I interviewed some sports psych uh, uh, sorry behavioural psychologists as well. So, from that perspective, what I learned is that we have in our minds uh, like mental scales. I guess you could you could frame them as, uh, and we weigh up decisions. And 
we all have thresholds, decision thresholds. Some people is higher than others and some people are lower. Mine is naturally quite high. And that means that, um, uh, sorry, mine is naturally quite low. And when a certain decision reaches a certain weight on my scales, it doesn't have to reach a 90% weight. I'm quite happy if the decision's at 75% and I'll go forward. And there's no real science or knowledge of why some people's threshold is really high, like 90%. They need a hundred, almost a 95% assurance that this decision is going to be good before they'll go with it. That's somebody who's really indecisive at that high 95% bracket. It's somebody who, who's reckless and makes crazy decisions. They might have a threshold at like 60%. I only need this to weigh a certain amount before I'll just go for it. So the, the, these mental scales are really, inside all of us, are really the key to managing indecision, but also managing recklessness. And the, the great thing about neurosciences and science today is that it's common knowledge now that you can teach an old dog new tricks. We don't mm. stop learning and we don't stop developing new neural pathways in our brain. That's exactly, that's actually what's happening. And you can train that. And the book that I wrote is all about that. It's about training your mental scales, calibrating them and making sure that they're in a healthy state because the better you train those mental scales, the easier you're going to find it to make decisions. And it can lower your threshold and it can increase your threshold if you're a bit reckless, but it's about balancing those mental scales. Hmm. And in regards to, you know, sort of overcoming the doubt, you know, you're talking about your kind of your threshold on, you know, how much information do I need? Uh, how assured do I feel? But when it comes into overcoming doubt, you know, what, what are some tips that people can use to, you know, w when there is a bit of doubt there, how can we, I, I suppose, prepare ourselves to go, you know what, it's okay to th that we might have a bit of fear there and, and to be quite honest if you don't have a little bit of doubt and a little bit of fear when you're making especially bigger decisions you're not human <laughs> exactly yeah and we have two different decision making systems in our brain you have like an autonomous decision making system you know get it, brush your teeth the things that you just do on autopilot and that's the majority of decisions but then you have conscious cognitive um decision making um mechanisms and that's what you're talking about there with those biggest decision bigger decisions and you sit and you weigh the uh, pros and cons about uh, the important point there's challenges with that cognitive or conscious decision making process there's a whole raft of challenges i'm not going to go into but one of them is that there's moving targets right you can you might decide let's say it's the financial markets i'm not sure whether i should invest but new information will come tomorrow new information will come the day after and actually new information is going to come every day at a point you've got to draw a line and make a decision and what the book advocates is um is is committing to a process of dis conscious decision making and that's flipping a coin so once you've gone through that um cognitive process the conscious process and weighed the pros and cons if you still haven't reached a, a final outcome perhaps it's uh what to have for dinner tonight whether you're going to have thai or you're going to have pizza if you've kind of gone through the pros and cons and go i can't decide whether or not pizza or tie, simply flip a coin. And what that is, it's a it's a form of metacognition is what psychologists call it. And it short circuits your doubt. And because doubt, the longer you leave it to make a decision, the less likely you are to make a decision. So making it quickly, so reaching that point of where, okay, I can't split between these two, flip a coin, heads or tails, mm. that short circuits that in your brain and stops that that vicious cycle that reduces your chance of making a decision the longer you leave it. So that's what the book advocates. It's flipping a coin. And whilst that sounds very flippant, it's actually a very, um, there's a good sound psychological region, reason for doing it. And that's metacognition. Yeah. The attractiveness of a leader who does make a, a decision quickly is generally like, it's something that draws people in. Um, but you know there's a difference between making a decision on your own you know do i cross the road or do i do i stay on the side of the road and generally that's that's an individual type thing you know and i'm using a very simple analogy um, but quite often we're making decisions where when we require other people to be involved in the decision making process sometimes we have to make a consensus decision or, or collective decision um but i always find you know, those people who are able to clearly articulate what you know, 
what we don't know, but here is the action we're taking, are the ones that generally tend to be quite successful in leadership because they're being decisive and, as you say, flipping a coin. This is the action we're going to take. Whether it's right or wrong, it's based on, as long as we share the clarity of what we know, what we don't know, here is the decision we're going to make. People will lean into that and they'll give you grace as well if it doesn't work. Yeah, now that's an important point that you make there. A lot of people can look at decision-making retrospectively and say it was a bad decision. And rather than separating the fact that there are outcomes and there are decisions, and I'll give you an example. There was uh, it's an example I wrote about in the book, the the um, the uh, uh, Carabao Cup final between Liverpool and Chelsea. So I'm talking um, soccer now. A few years ago, um, uh, Thomas Tuchel had um, a guy called Kepper, who was one of his keepers, and uh, and he'd had keep he'd had Kepper on the bench for the whole game. It had gone into overtime. They played 25 minutes overtime, and it came to a penalty shootout. And one minute before the overtime finished, he subbed out his keeper. It was nil all. Subbed out his main keeper, Mendy, and uh, and brought Kepper on. And people were like, "What the hell?" Now the decision behind the decision was a good decision. In the background, what had happened in previous games, several previous games in the lead up to the final, which most people hadn't watched because you can't only watch the final in the knockout tournament. He'd done that several times and it had been good for him because what Kepa could do was focus entirely on the penalty shootout. And his whole job and his whole preparation for the game was to work out who was going to take them, where were they likely to take them and set up a plan for it. Mendy, all he had to do was focus on the game and that was just making saves and keeping the goal out and organising the team. The decision itself was good, but what happened was uh, this shootout was, I mean, it's one of the most historically uh, famous shootouts that'll probably go down in Carabao Cup history is that 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 uh, all 12, so normally it's five penalties, as, as you know, five penalty takers all hit. So Kepa didn't keep one of them out, but nor did Allison for Liverpool. Then they went to six, seven, and it got to 12 goals. So the two keepers had to kick. And this is so unheard of. Allison went first and he hit a beautiful strike and knocked it past Kepa. And then Kepa had to go back. A goalie had to penalty shoot and he missed everything. He shot it like there's funny stories of the, the, the ball being on the moon. He shot it so high. He missed everything and they lost. And everyone said, what a stupid decision that was. You know, why did Tuchel do that? The decision itself was good. The outcome was not good. And you, you've got to be able to mentally separate yourself from the outcome and then recognize when an outcome's not going your way to stop and pull away from it. That's a huge psychological advantage, but it's also a, uh, there was nothing wrong with the decision. There, there are times when you can make a good decision and it might not work and that's okay. And being okay with that is part of good decision-making. Mm, I, I like that. It's a really good way of, you know, that separation of outcome decision um, yeah. and, and we only we can only make decisions based on the knowledge we have in that moment and our experiences prior to that moment. So we're generally basing decisions on what is our prior knowledge and then what is our present knowledge because the future is we don't know. We, we can't guarantee what that's going to look like. We can maybe predict or have an idea what we think it might do, but we, we have no concrete understanding of what will happen in the future. Uh, so I think it is important yeah. for people to understand that. I really like that approach. Yeah, I mean, Tuchel was asked after the game, would you do it again? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. It's the right strategy. Because nine times out of ten, as if you think about the odds, that will work in his favor, and it had worked. But, uh, you know, he was able to make a clear separation. But a lot of people, especially if they're not very confident, will carry that forward, mm -hmm. and then that will influence their next decision. And card players know this as well. Just because a, card, a bad card turns you still play the odds. So that's uh, it's an important part of decision-making. Okay, so let's put ourselves now into a situation where we've got a room of, let's say six people. Those six people, and, and say it's on a, a board where those six people have to make the decision. So it's not just one person now. Those six people collectively have to make a decision. How does the flip of a coin or flip and go approach work when you've got this, um, you've got collective decision-making happening. Now, there's some fundamental rules, and I think this is the key, is that when you have a group environment, I worked on a, a, with Best Western with a, 
a board of 12 and I couldn't, you know, most decisions I had to, big decisions I had to make with the board in mind. But the, the, the structure that we went into our meetings with was to bring the information that we needed to the meeting to start with. So preparation's key. The, everyone's got to be bad already and got to be prepared to hear home truths. And, and if you have a group environment where somebody's got an opinion and it gets shut down and it doesn't get heard, that will lead can very often lead to indecision. So you've got to be battle ready and everyone's got to be prepared to hear uncomfortable truths. And you've got to have a diverse range of opinions in the room for effective decision making. And if you have that that those ingredients, a good strong leader who's set the ground rules and set the parameters, you get the diverse opinions, everyone's ready to take the the tough, you know, tough feedback, generally you'll lean, land on a pretty good outcome. And then the flip of a coin can still come into that environment as well. And I, I coach that in some of the trainings that I do is that, look, if you get to a point at the end of that meeting and you split between two decisions, it probably doesn't matter at that point which decision you make. Just flip a coin and make one or heads and tails do uh, rock, paper, scissors, whatever you want, but just make a decision. And in business today, speed of decision-making is more important than accuracy of decision-making. So we have so many data points available to us. Mm. So even if you make the wrong decision, you can very quickly identify that you've made the wrong decision and, and adjust. Yeah. So I would say it's more about iterations, quick decisions and quick iterations and monitoring those. And that'll be the, that, that is the, the success of decision-making in business today is speed. Yeah, it's, it's good. We've, we've been talking about this recently around diversity helps and hinders. So if you want speed of decision-making, um, or sorry, speed of an outcome, then you put like-minded people together. You, they can be very diverse, but they need to be like-minded. If you want a greater outcome, then you put a lot of diverse, different points of view, different people around, but you've then got to be prepared that it's going to take a lot longer because you need everyone to be heard. You need to everyone to feel, um, like they have a voice, you need to then go through the process of uh, debate and consensus, which can take time. And so I think the, what would you share with leaders around the importance of kind of looking at situations and having to make a decision on what needs speed of outcome versus what needs a potentially greater outcome? Look, if the decision won't crush you, make it quickly is my my uh, my theory on this and what i teach on this is if, if it's not going to destroy your business financially or whatever it might be make it quickly and 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 if you've got a commitment if you've got a leader in the room who gains that commitment from everyone okay listen guys we're going to make a decision today we're going to hear everyone's outcome we're stuck at the end on two decisions we're going to just go with one through the process of picking a number out of the hat whatever it is if it's not going to destroy you, make it quickly. That that that's my advice. If it's going to destroy you, or if it has potential to destroy you, and there's more information that you can gather, absolutely take your time. <laughs> I'm not advocating to flip a coin and and you know risk the whole business. Uh, so th that but that's the the question that I always coach to to leaders is to say, will this will this decision destroy you? If not, make it quickly, move on. Mm. Okay, so let's let's go into a different situation. And I don't know if you've ever had this in any of your hotels, but I know it can it has happened and, and can happen in different parts of the world where maybe you've got a hostage situation or maybe you've got a... Um, uh, you may even have some crazy person who's come in with a knife or a gun or, or something like that where you... It, it could be life or death, but you've got to make a decision quickly uh, what can help prevent us from freezing in a way or staying in that space where we can actually um, make decisions with clarity of mind? It doesn't mean we have clarity of all the information, but we have clarity of mind versus that, that situation where we just freeze and, and maybe we're clouded and, and struggle. Yeah, I guess instinct kicks in here, but the... the the um the the emergency field uh if you're in war for example if you're in battle they use a a, a system slightly different to to what i've explained before what they use is a system of, of elimination so when they're in a situation they'll come up with a scenario immediately in their head and they will say 
can this end me? Can this be a, 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 is there anything flawed with this particular scenario? So they won't actually look for multiple options. They'll look for the first one and decide if that's going to put everything at risk or not. If it's, if they perceive it to have low risk, they'll take it. So it's, it's, it's almost like a, an automotive, they train for it as well. So they'll put themselves in those scenarios time and time and time again in order to make the best decision. So it's re repetition. But mm. for us as a, as a layman who don't have that training, it's uh, it, that that's a different situation altogether. And I, I, I liken this to just recently, um, and she's good by the way now, my, my dog, she, uh, she passed out. She had a, um, in front of me, she's 16 years old and, and she had a, she has a balloon around her heart, protecting her heart and that burst and fluid went into her heart. And I didn't know what to do. It was 11 o'clock at night and I found myself, no, I love this dog. I gave it mouth to mouth. <laughs> and, and I found myself, I ran to my neighbors and I ran outside and I realized I was still in my underwear. I'm like, I can't go to the vet in my underwear. You almost go into an automaticity kind of uh, state where you, 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 you don't know what you're actually, you're not consciously doing anything. I remember I got to the vet and the vet said, you've got blood all down your leg. I didn't even realize I cut my leg somehow along the way. So I think there's a point when you're thrown into one of these really crazy deep ends where instinct takes over and you're almost not in control it's your fight or flight system really guiding all your all your movements and all your actions from that moment and you're almost uh, a passenger in the process so i would definitely a passenger in that process a few weeks ago mm. yeah interesting you're talking about instinct here uh so let's uh i'll give maybe my perspective on this so impulses we react without thinking intuition is we respond based on our previous experiences um, and then intellect is where we need to gather all the information to make a decision uh, how do we present, prevent ourselves from falling into an impulsive state which which could have a good outcome but but it is kind of a reckless approach in a way how, how we stop ourselves from going in there and allow ourselves to be in a more of an intuitive space more often there is techniques that uh that neuroscientists um promote things like breathing techniques you can go into the um eight, eight, seven breaths in hold you hold your breath for four seconds and then breathe out and it, you know breathing techniques can calm your mind it'll it'll change the um physiological makeup in your brain and calm I got to tell you, the moment my puppy collapsed the other week, there was no way in the world I could think about a breathing technique. So I think at a certain point, your body, uh, the fight or flight, um, you know, the fight or flight system in our, our brain, which is, um, you know, it, it's it's kept us alive for many years. It goes back to prehistoric days when, you know, we had to protect ourselves. It prepares your body for for action it, it starts pushing the adrenaline through your body and prepares you for a fight or to run to flight mm. it contracts your heart there's a whole heap of physiological reactions that happen when you go into fight or flight and i have to say for all the techniques in the world two weeks ago or it was a month ago actually when this happened it was just purely for me fight or flight running my system it wasn't anything that you could build or teach or create or or enhance I was purely in the hands of fight or flight, and I, I don't think that was a bad thing. It worked, and I got I got her to the vet in time. And that intuition, or not, I won't say intuition, that instinct of fight or flight actually drove a good outcome. So you know, trust that intuition, uh, instinct. I would say. Mm. Confidence is is a big part of you know our lives and whether we're prepared to step up or we're prepared to hide or we're prepared to just totally let go and and surrender and in, in, into a space of i don't know i don't know what's going to happen just let it happen uh for you how important is confidence in regards to not only your internal confidence but how you project confidence when it comes to decision making well, from a leadership point of view, it's super important to project that confidence. But a, a more recent experiences when I, you know, I was in a, a role as CEO, I was, um, it was a high profile role and I drew a lot of confidence just from that. And when I stepped out of that role and all of a sudden I had to fight for a lot of things that I in the past didn't have to, you know, it was, wasn't 
difficult for me to knock on a door and it'd be opened. All of a sudden, no one's opening the door. I lost a lot of that confidence personally. So I had to learn to build, rebuild all that from within. And for me, I think the the, the key to it for me has been is journaling and, and setting out tasks each day, which I can achieve. And at the end of the day, then sit down and say, yep, I achieved this task. And what that does is that builds uh, it builds confidence in your brain because it reinforces to your brain that I said I was going to do this and I did it. I completed it. I said I was going to do this. And it's almost like stacking bricks. And mm. the more you do that every day, you're stacking a pile of bricks inside your brain that says, hey, I'm building confidence. And every time you say you're going to do something and you don't do it, then it tells your brain, hey, don't trust what this person says and you lose confidence. Yeah. So confidence is something you build from within, in my opinion. Uh, you can have it from external sources like I did, but it's fragile. And and the minute it's taken away and you lose that confidence, you're then left with nothing. Whereas internal confidence, when you're stacking those wins up every single day, even if you have a day when you don't hit your target, as long as you've got more bricks on the side that say yes than you do on the ones that say no, your brain understands that. And from a neuroscience point of view, that's really important to building confidence. Mm. I love how you've not just taken your experiences, but now you're delving into understanding the expertise behind decision making, which is really invaluable. And, you know, for people out there, obviously, I'd recommend having a look at this, you know, buying this book and, and having a read of it, because you can tell that it's not just based on your experiences, you are bringing expertise and as you're backing up what you're saying. Because uh, anyone would just think, oh, flipping a coin, that's, that's a little bit reckless in a way. But you're actually creating a space to say, hey, you know what, there is actually a, a smart reason behind we're you know, approaching decision making in this way. And, you know, here's the, here's the evidence that backs it up. So I really like that. So well done. Um, yeah, confidence is, a, is an interesting one. I think you've got, you know, we, we talk about the house of confidence. So you've got a a foundational confidence that is built up that is a over time it's an internal thing it takes a while to kind of shift it which is you know no matter what i'll be okay and it's it's your level of whatever situation no matter what i'll be okay but then what you're talking about there is the comp is kind of situational confidence where it's all about competence and familiarity and so you know when you shifted from being an athlete into the hospitality you've gone from a high level of competence in as an athlete to now being in a hotel industry where your competence and your familiarity is not so high so your overall internal confidence will drop slightly because you need to build up those that pillar again but then we're affected on a daily basis so for you how what sort of things do you put in place <clears throat> you talked about obviously the journaling there but other things do you put in place on a daily basis from a well-being or perspective that ensure that your confidence remains relatively high and doesn't fluctuate on a day-to-day -day basis? I mean, it really is for me about uh, just sticking to what I, I know I can do and, and, and staying true to that and keep reinforcing to my brain. It's almost like a brain hack that no matter what, even if I don't know how to do something, I know I can learn to do it. And if mm. I say I'm going to do it, I'll do it. And my brain knows that. So, you know, the example, I guess I could say is marketing um, or maybe finance. All of a sudden, when you're a startup, you know, I've had loads of financial controllers and CFOs and whatever around me to help me and accounts payable, accounts receivable, all these people that you can just go to who do all this for you. And all of a sudden, you have to do it yourself. And Although I don't have the confidence and I don't know how to do it, I have the confidence to know that, okay, if I say I'm going to do it, I'll do it. And I'll, I draw strength from that. And, and I know that I'm not going to do it overnight. It's not going to happen tomorrow. And I'll have to read a lot of blogs and I'll have to talk to a lot of people. But I have the confidence that I can do that and I'm comfortable doing that. And over time, I'll, I, will, I will learn. I've proven that several times over and now I'll just prove it again trying to learn a tax system in the US when uh, when you you know it's the third tax system I've had to learn but I have the confidence that I'll be able to learn it even though I don't have the confidence that I know what to do just mm. yet mm. we're having uh, there's a lot of talk in in the corporate world right now around disseminating decision making uh, throughout an organization uh, as a leader 
what sort of things do you need to be aware of when you start disseminating the decision-making throughout an organization? Yeah, I'm a big fan of this, by the way. I'm a big fan of democratization and, and empowerment. And, but for empowerment to work, you know, there are, it's it's crazy how many um if you ask 10 people from 10 different companies what their values are what the company values are and it's scary how few people know what their actual values are and the reality is the the greatest beacon for decision making of a company is the values that it lives by and they should be non-negotiable they should be really clear they're not you know a sign that hangs up in the hr office they're how you operate every single day. So for me, that's the big illumination of the path and that guides decision-making. And of course, the mission as well, the company mission statement, purpose. You know, it's sort of a bit uh, buzzy and it sort of sits in a, the realm of HR and sometimes the GM will talk, the, the, I mean, the, the, the CEO will talk about it, but nobody really cares. But it matters so much if you want to have that decentralized uh, decision-making po- um, process. And I think the companies that get this right, time and time again, prove that they're the market leaders. The ones who are able to empower their staff, one, their staff prefer to be there because they're actually making a difference. But the ones who are able to do that within a, a structure, a proper structure that facilitates those mistakes, although those decisions and accepts that there's going to be mistakes, they're the ones who thrive in today's business environment because, as I said before, it comes back to speed of decision-making. And if it has to go up a chain, you're not going to be quick, you're not going to be nimble, and you're just not going to survive in, in, a, in a data-driven environment, particularly with you know the addition of AI and the impact that that brings to the market. How quickly people can get information now is ridiculous. Mm. So allow them to make decisions quickly. Yeah, very good. I like that. Rob, we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something? Well, in the last 18 months, I, uh, I, I wrote, wrote a book, which I probably didn't think I was going to do this. It was always on the bucket list, but it wasn't something I thought I'd do this early. It was sort of forced upon my visa situation in the US. But uh, yeah, that would be the... Um, the last time I did something for the first time. And it's kind of scary. Like, where do I start? How do I do this? I mean, I can write a piece of on a piece of paper, but how do you design a book cover? And how do you write a blurb? And how do you get listed on Amazon? And how do you get into the bookstores? And <laughs> there's a lot to learn, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't change the journey that I went on for, for anything. Yeah, awesome. I love it. I can feel the passion. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, indecision. I'd love to solve indecision. So it's a, um, it's a passion. Obviously, I've written a book about it, but uh, I'd love to be able to solve indecision. You know, I cripple so many people, mm. and I think it's people live in fear almost in some senses of making a decision. It can be as simple as, what are we going to have for dinner? I mean, that's lost time. There's a book written by an, an Australian uh, palliative care nurse called Bronnie Ware. You might know it, the, the top five regrets of the dying. And for years, she asked people who are in her palliative care, what were their biggest regrets? And, you know, it's never, um, oh, I should have had time instead of pizza. Uh, and But we waste so much time on indecision. And that's time that you could be spending with a loved one or going after your dream or whatever it is, those top five regrets all speak to indecision and, and or no decision. Hmm. So that would be the what I'd like to solve. Okay, good. What is an inspiring great leader to you and who is a great example of this? I would always sort of defer here to, uh, to Nelson Mandela. I think his level of self-leadership is uh is unparalleled his his ability to go through so much pain and so much suffering and you know the greats have all gone through incredible amounts of suffering his ability to come out and stay true to his values and forgiveness was clearly one of his big values to stay true to that after 
everything. 27 years. I think it was 18 on Robben Island, but 27 years he was imprisoned. And he was able to come out as a peaceful man and forgive everyone. That epitomizes self-leadership above anything anyone else has ever done in this world, in my opinion. Mm, quite remarkable. Rob, yeah. uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, if you're in the hospitality industry and you, you want to get in touch, especially, uh, go to the grind-academy.com. That's my, uh, my website. And uh, you'll find everything from there. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It's been great. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, we'll put that link in the show notes along with uh, the link to his book uh, and maybe his LinkedIn as well, because I think you're a fascinating human being and, and a lot of people can learn about decision-making with you. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I, I loved going back to your childhood and, and finding some, <laughs> some familiarities between the two of us where you had a school of seven kids to uh, chasing that dream as a professional athlete stumbling across uh, your your future career in hospitality while cleaning the toilets uh, on on top on the bar on top of the hotel there in Sydney uh, to you know under, like taking that time out when you probably were challenged in your life to think what do I do next to look at decision making which is something that every single person goes through and we've all had those instances where we've hesitated and we may not have got the outcome we were looking for but we've also made those decisions at times we made them quickly and gone oh that was great and whether it was right or wrong it it's it allowed us then to course correct really fast if we needed to or to ride the wave because we had made the right decision uh, so I'm really looking forward to staying in touch and uh, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rob. Thank you. Yeah, thank you and, and keep up your, your great work as well, bringing a great message to the, to the world. Thank you very much. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next inspiring great leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>